Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes, completely eradicating, not just reducing, completely eradicating. I believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for Mondays, not Fridays and get to do their most meaningful work. The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content, but instead shift the context under which you operate. This podcast is titled Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. In each episode, I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices, which are not always easy and comfortable, but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves, and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action, as those were the moments when you chose leadership. At the end, I will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast. And with that, let's get started. Barnaby Doffman is currently enjoying a sabbatical, but formerly he was a CTO at GoOne and Payscale and before that a VP at Omweson. In the interview, Barnaby shared his early fascination with technology, the challenges of leading a distributed and remote team, and what he has learned by leading across cultures and geographies. We also talk about the importance of quarterly planning the role of Agile in software development, and now his plans to travel as he enjoys his sabbatical with his family. Hi, Barnaby. Welcome to the Choosing Leadership Podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. And to begin with, right, for our listeners, can you start by sharing who you are and what do you do? Sure. So my name is Barnaby Dorfman. I am an executive leader in technology. I've been working in the technology sector for about 25 years. I've actually been essentially a manager and operator for about 35 years. So been along for the ride of developing the internet uh, and web technologies that many of us use every day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And before we get into that, right, can you share a little bit of your backstory? Sure. I'm originally from New York City. Uh, I think if people look me up on LinkedIn, the thing that they won't see is my father was an independent filmmaker and an early adopter of technology. So we got our first computer in the late 1970s, and I started uh, writing code as a kid. And as technology evolved, and in particular, um, when the web became, the consumer web became a thing in the 1990s, I just dove in and was fascinated by it and continue to be fascinated by it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And how has that uh, like impacted you as a person, right? Getting into that technology very early, but also what did you learn from your father or like uh, those other influences in those early years? Sure, I think it really comes down to curiosity. Um, you know, the thing about developing technology is so much of what we do is has never been done before. It's not like building buildings or bridges or. I don't know, working in a kitchen where you follow a recipe. It's really around following your curiosity and imagining what if, what could be. 
And so in part of my time in this business, I spent almost seven years at Amazon where you know, we invented all kinds of things. And it really did start just in a room with a bunch of people saying, here's a problem or here's a technology that empowers things that have never been done before, but we don't really know how to use it. What if? And we would sit around and come up with things. And some of them didn't work out, um, but some of them have changed people's lives, everyday lives in many ways. Yeah. And how has that uh, like morphed into working with people? Because you have spent a lot of your time, as you said, right? As a manager, as a leader. How has that evolved from technology working with computers to working with people? I think these two can be pulled apart. So I just wanted to hear your perspective. No, that's a great question. Um, in my most recent role, I worked for a company called Go One, which is actually based in Australia. I'm based in the United States near Seattle. And so distributed team within product and engineering, we had people in Australia, Vietnam, throughout Latin America, US and Europe. The team got to about 175 people. And yeah, and, and in the role of a CTO, it really is, as you say, about working with people and helping them to do that innovation and development. I, I wasn't writing code, haven't done so in a long time, at least professionally. And I think, again, it's that helping people with curiosity, but also helping them get past the all of the reasons why you can't. There's, you know, especially once you get into production, I mean, I think when you have a blank whiteboard and you're just making stuff up, it's kind of easy. But once you actually have millions of users, which we did, no one's an online learning platform for employees. So once you have thousands of customers, companies with customers with millions of employees as users, suddenly it gets harder to change things. And I think it becomes easier to feel constrained. And I think also what I've seen now more and more over the years is these chains of dependencies where people become worried about, well, if I, ch if I change something here, it's going to have a negative effect over there, or I have to go talk to these five teams to get permission. And so one of the things kind of, there are many dimensions to hiring, leading, managing teams, but one of the things that I've been pretty focused on in, in recent years is helping people kind of relax constraints, imagine that those limitations are not there. What would it look like? How can you and how can you break problems down into their smallest um, chunks and really embrace experimentation as a methodology and even as a culture, which I think at the end of the day is the core of what Agile is all about, Agile software development, which is a software development um, methodology and philosophy that I've embraced. So those are a few dimensions that I tend to think about. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's more also more of a mindset mm -hmm. you're describing. How do you communicate that or how do you make communicate it across to people, especially when you're working with people from multiple different countries, cultures, not even seeing them physically? Because many times it, it's like, like you don't even know what somebody is thinking or what's going on in, for them. Mm -hmm. You learned uh, like in working with distributed teams, especially in the last two to three years. Well, I mean, I would say it's challenging. The first thing I've learned, um, I think as an industry, we don't really know how that's all going to settle out. Tools like Slack or Microsoft Teams are still relatively new and evolving quickly. And the social norms, things that we've brought from evolution from the caves, some of them are translating into ways of working kind of in, in these distributed global um, remote ways and others not so well. And so <clears throat> again, a lot of experimentation, but at the end of the day, it really is important to connect with people as people. You know, as you, we can travel again, I think that's an important element of just connecting one on one. The first year I was at Go One, <clears throat> there for two years, I, it was entirely remote. I was here in, in the United States, 
4 p.m. here is 9 a.m. tomorrow in Australia, where our company is headquartered. And so I actually shifted my hours to working kind of office hours were 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. And um, and then actually Sunday through Thursday to really be able to connect as best I could with folks and, you know, had some successes and there were some limitations to that. And, and then once we could travel again, I really leaned into that. I, I think for me, I'd never worked with the Vietnamese culture. I hadn't worked with developers in that country. And so actually getting to Ho Chi Minh City and meeting people and getting to know them and understanding what's important to them and a bit about their lives. I think a lot of people might think it's wasteful to go have a big meal and then go, you know, drink a little bit too much and then go sing karaoke together. But the reality is after I did that, the ability through even a quick Slack message to say to somebody, hey, please do this and have them not like be all worried and spend too much time on it, but just be re relaxed with me and know that I just really want to get this one thing done and I'm not testing them. I'm not, there's no ulterior motive because we, we sang uh, Islands in the Stream together. Thank you for adding that. I think uh, that's so relevant, especially with this debate about uh, like virtual or the future of work. And what you're saying is, I think it will be a mix of some kind, like not mm -hmm. either way or the other. And yet it's not also not black and white. There is value to human interaction. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think especially for leaders, there is a huge value. Uh, and I think most of the debate on the remote side is what I'm hearing from engineers or people who have very limited people interaction in their role. So how do you end up communicating this? Or how do you make it tactical, right? Do you make it mandatory for everybody to come together maybe once a quarter? Or like how do you manage that balance? What do you, have you seen working for you? Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I don't think there's any one thing that fits or works for everybody, but I do think that you need to have structure. Um, people, uh, humans are creatures of habit. Um, and so if you don't create structure, people will create their own structure and those structures won't be aligned. It'll, it'll be different. And it is hard across time zones and haven't, I wouldn't say I've cracked it or solved it completely, but some of the experiments that I've run and some of the things that I've done that I think have been useful there. One is again, kind of, within Agile and other methodologies, embracing those and then having tying that into the calendar. So <clears throat> everything for me really starts with the strategy. What are we trying to accomplish? What is our goal generally as a company? What's our mission? And then over some vision or view that's a three to five year where we want to be in the future. And that helps everybody kind of lift their eyes up and focus on a point, a single point. And the power of, that I've seen is imagine you're wondering through the forest on a journey to a distant mountaintop that you can see every once in a while, not always breaking them. And you need resources, you know, you're going to need so much food and water, et cetera. Um, then as you move through time and space, you can pick those things up and I think, and bring them along with you and kind of have them as you need them. And I think strategy in software development, product development, engineering management is it, it, it serves a similar purpose, but then you have to kind of say, okay, well, over the next year, what are we going to do? And that's where that's largely driven by the budget. So the budget really determines how many people is the most expensive um, element of the budget within software development, certainly, especially now with cloud computing and kind of other resources, open source. So how am I going to deploy the people I have? And if I am a globally distributed organization, where am I going to put them? Because there are cost differences and productivity and stylistic differences. So the, the budget serves as a frame um, and one of my one of my favorite quotes is actually from current U.S. President Joe Biden said, "Don't tell me what you value. Show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value." And I think it's very true. But once some connection to where we're trying to go, 
what resources and people do we have to achieve it? Then you can start thinking about, you know, lower levels, the product strategy, the product roadmap, what are the features and functionality we're going to deliver? How much are we going to dedicate to technical debt? Things that, you know, maybe have become outdated or we did it quickly and it's not scaling kind of those kinds. And there's a constant tension between new features, functionality, and what is often called technical debt or purely technical work that is needed to keep systems going and to scale, to support more and more users. And I think that tends to break you down into a set of goals and objectives. And then you get into quarterly planning and um, a framework that I've embraced and a number of the companies I've worked for like quite a bit of, is OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, which is within the quarter you, you identify typically three to five, maximum five, minimum three is, I like three is a really good number. Three is kind of a magic number for human beings in terms of our ability to remember and <clears throat> categorize things, but set up objectives. Again, back to, I want to reach the mountaintop, or I just want to grow enough food to store for winter, continue with that analogy. Um, and then the key result is how I measure that. So <clears throat> enough food is a, the objective and the key result is 500 bushels of corn. I don't know. And once you've identified those things, that kind of gives you the quarter. And again, the product roadmap, should align with that. The organization, you know, reorgs within tech happen a lot and sometimes they're seen as a negative, but really are, am I aligning people with skills, abilities, how they interact with each other, that the chemistry between people, uh, am I aligning all of that well against what it is I'm trying to achieve from an objectives and a key results perspective? Once I have that, <clears throat> then I, and I'm a particular fan of agile scrum. So agile, and for those of you who are not familiar, I really recommend the Agile Manifesto. So I think it's agilemanifesto.org. It's really the original source material. And there's, um, there's kind of a manifesto and then there's a set of principles. For me, it's a quasi-religious document. I mean, I think it really lays out things that are useful in everyday life, not just software development, but I'd highly recommend people spend the 10 minutes it takes to read that or reread it if you've read it in the past. But the idea behind Agile Scrum is that you then break into sprints. You have typically Scrum teams, which are made up of typically a product person, design, and then a group of engineers. And then a team is sufficient to actually go from concept to completion on some sort of project, be that a new feature, a new way of doing something in the product, or again, something that's more technical, like maybe improving the way that um, login and sign-in and password resets work which is always a hard problem. I think we all know that because we deal with it every day. And those typically are two weeks long. And so you wind up with typically six of those within a quarter. You get the year of 12 months and then four quarters and then six sprints. Make almost, you can lay it out on a single page, almost like a mandala of what the year will look like, which I really like. And then within the two weeks, there's a set of ceremonies, they're called ceremonies, agile ceremonies. And so really actually following me is that one of the things I see at a lot of companies that I've consulted with or been an advisor to, or have been in executive leadership roles, people sort of pretend to do agile or they do call it agile-esque, or they, you know, they don't really lean in and do the things that make it work. And so I think actually leaning in and all this stuff is available. Wikipedia has great articles on agile. There are many books, but it's not complicated, but it is detailed. And so, um, there's this notion of sprint planning where you get together as a group and you plan out what are we going to do over the next two weeks? And there's a thing called story points, which is it's a notion of a relative level of effort. It's not, shouldn't be hours. You shouldn't be saying an exact number of hours, but it's basically this <clears throat> pointing system where you can say, this thing's going to take me 
one point, and this is going to be five. And, it, and the sequence is used, the Fibonacci sequence, so one, three, five. And, um, and then there's a thing called story point poker, which I actually really like. And the idea behind that, and people can actually use playing cards. There are apps you can use, specs the question of doing it remote or not. You can do this in Slack. You can do this in Zoom. But the idea is you get together, you read the, a user's story, which is a description of what it is that a user will be able to do when we complete this work. And then you have a little bit of a technical discussion, typically, of how are we going to do it technically? What resources, what software, what systems that exist already are we going to build on top of, or are we going to build something new? Um, and then you basically have everybody say, okay, one, two, three, go. And everybody shows a card, physical card, or uses an app to at the same time reveal how many story points, how much relative effort they think it's going to take. And the reason that you do it this way is so you don't want the senior engineer or architect or product person to influence everybody and say, oh, I only think it's one. This is an easy thing. <clears throat> and because more junior people, group think happens. They're not going to necessarily step up and say, I think this is a five. This is really going to be hard. And so when you do that, if everybody holds up a one, well, chances are you're aligned on how much effort it's going to be and the approach. But if one person says five, another person says three, another person says one, okay, we got to have an, a deeper conversation about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Because back to that beginning of the conversation, nobody's ever done this stuff before, for the most part. You're inventing, you're doing things for the first time. And so this is a good alignment technique. Um, and then there are a series of other things. There's the daily standup, which is a 15-minute period where everybody gets together, ideally, I think, in Zoom with cameras on and basically says, this is what I'm working on. This is what I did yesterday. This is what I'm planning on doing today. And this is what I'm blocked on or I need help with. And it's not a problem-solving session. It's a share that information. And then you and another person can go offline for help, or you can talk with the manager leader through to the end of that two-week period. There's a, what's known as a sprint review. Um, what I like there is to invite as many people as possible. If it's a small company, the whole company. And the sprint teams then actually demo what they did in the prior two weeks. And so within Agile, one of the notions is the only measure of progress is working code. So PowerPoint presentations and um, pretty pictures of what the user experience will look like don't count. It's what actually functions in a computer. And so it may not be a finished product. It may simply be a command line tool where a developer can do a query of the database uh, and get back a set of search results that are in code, but but really working. Yeah. And again, it's the little things. It's developers do the demo, not the product people. And that creates a cycle. It creates a celebration of the work that was accomplished. And then also accountability for the, what I said I was going to do, this is what I actually did. And so that cycle continues. Um, so that's the approach I take. And I have been able, I've seen that work in a remote way. It's harder across time zones. But uh, that's some of the structure that, that I find enables the collaboration um, in that journey of exploration and invention. Yeah. Experimentation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. Coming back to the present moment and a little bit into the future, right? Can you share what are you up to these days and what are your plans for the future? Sure. So I actually left my last role a few weeks ago. <clears throat> I was with the company for a couple of years and... Um, Going to a fantastic company, super high growth. And when I joined, there were a series of challenges and problems that that um, we leaned into and made a lot of great progress against. And um, I I just decided that it was time for something new. And so I've actually 
So I had to take some time off. I've never done that really in the 35 years that I've been been working since since I graduated from high school and college back and forth graduate school. But um, yeah, I just felt like it was time to lean in. And so I'm actually planning on taking my family to Central America for about three months. And I have a 12-year-old daughter who's going to go to a bilingual school and learning to speak Spanish. And I'm planning on using it as a time to do a lot of exploration reconnecting with people I've worked with over the years and not jumping into the next thing right away, actually allowing myself some time to to go deep on things that I don't know about, read more books, um, maybe write some code. I don't know. Well, yeah. I don't really can you, know. Yeah. Can you share a bit more about what sparked this decision to take a sabbatical rather than jump on to the next big thing? Yeah, I think it was... Listen, I mean, the last few years have been challenging and unique. As I said, I started my last job during the pandemic, uh, working entirely remote, working kind of very different hours. Because the team grew in size, when I joined Go on product team, product engineering, IT, design, et cetera, was about 60 people. By the time I left, it was about 175. That's a ton of growth. And I was with my the company before that, a company called Payscale for almost nine years. I'd never worked remote, fully remote. Um, at Payscale, we were 100% here in Seattle, everybody working in the office. Then we wound up acquiring a few companies around the United States and kind of had this remote hybrid that was working quite well. Uh, but I just going from, as I think I mentioned, fully remote, with the challenges of learning to do that as a person, as an individual employee, and then massive amount of travel. I've in the last year I've been to Australia a couple of times, Vietnam, Europe, many parts of the United States. Just a a, a challenge, kind of creating that work life balance that I think is really important. And and while there are many opportunities out there, because you know, despite the layoffs we're seeing and some of the turmoil and change and everything that's happening at Twitter and um, I'm still super bullish on technology, and I believe that it's still very early. That we still, while we've solved many technical hard problems as an industry and things that used to be, you'd have to hire a whole team to manage. Now you can just use cloud computing, be it AWS or Azure or similar. There's still the average website is still too hard to use. I, I had to add money to my daughter's school um, lunch account yesterday, and oh, it was almost impossible. And so this is kind of a long answer to your question, but. I, I feel like finding that work-life balance for me is something I wanted to invest in. And then also, I think one of the one of the things that I, if I could turn back the clock and do differently is, I think I've been a little too inwardly focused. Um, I don't mean personally, but I mean within the company, internally focused throughout my career. At different times, I've had different roles that have been more internal or more external, but in general, I think there's so much happening in the world of, in general, but also in the world of technology. And one of the things I know about myself is that I go really deep within whatever is going on at the company I'm at. And so the idea with this break in the sabbatical was, again, some work-life balance, some just get my head into a different space, but then also just creating an openness to exploration and to um, just finding out about new things that are happening in the world without having to worry about the day-to-day -day and the staff meetings I have to get to and the expense reports I have to approve and the budgets I have to work on and all of those things. Yeah. So that's that, th those are some of the thoughts. Yeah. And can you share a little bit of what's next, right? Once you finish the sabbatical, what is it 
that you deeply care about or what is it that is unfulfilled that you would like to like take it in the next phase of your career? You know, part of the, the key to this is I don't actually know the answer to that question. No, I think for me, it, it, I've had a pretty structured, ordered career where I've been constantly looking to that next thing and pushing to the next thing. After a decade of being in the CTO role, and I founded a company with CEO before that, and I've been at large companies. I've, I was a VP uh, at Amazon and worked on core search there. I feel like I've ticked off a lot of the things that, that I wanted to do. And so some of the things that are probably in my future, I mean, I think helping other people with a similar journey. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of ways that can, forms that can take. I mean, being in a CTO role, I've had the opportunity to hire, manage, lead, mentor many people, hundreds of people. And so I think continuing to do that, but maybe in slightly different forms, I don't know exactly what that would look like. Um, you know, I definitely have chosen uh, roles at companies where I think there's a mission that's contributing to making the world a better place. Go One is all about learning and empowering people. Their their goal is to reach a billion learners and to help the average employee be more effective, successful in their job through learning. And I think education is really important to me. Company prior to that, Payscale, is all about um compensation data, pay transparency. And that's really around, I see it as making labor markets more efficient, which you know is important. So there, there's some categories that I can see myself diving into the environment, what's happening globally. I think bringing technology to more technology to more people. Um, I was just in Mexico, just took a kind of a 10 day trip to decompress a little bit after leaving my job. And it's almost entirely a cash society still. Uh, I didn't see a single person use a cell phone or a watch to tap to pay. And the multiple times I've been to Australia in the last year, I never touched a piece of Australian currency. I paid 100% the credit card, but almost always through a, a tap to pay on my phone app. And I was just talking, I just had breakfast actually yesterday with a friend who's from India, someone I used to work with, who was just in India and said that Google Pay is everywhere for everything. And you pay literally for everything. And so why is there that difference between Mexico and India, which are both developing economies? Um, so those are a couple of examples of things that I think are interesting. And then in terms of company size, I don't know. Uh, it's an important dimension. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for adding that. A little bit uh, on the personal, personal side, right? Can you share something which most people do not know about you? I tend to be pretty open about things, but uh, let's see. Things that not many people would know about me. I'm left-handed. My my daughter's left-handed. My mother's left-handed. So I'm uh, I'm part of three generations of lefties. Um, and I actually bring it up because I think there's an interesting. There's a lot. I think we're learning a lot about neurological differences, neurodifferent typicals, and people who are different. And being left-handed is not a huge difference. About ten percent of the population is left-handed. And I will admit, I'm I am I probably have a prejudice in favor of left-handed people. I think the interesting thing about left-handed is so many things, systems. Physical designs, like my mouse, I just got a new mouse, very much designed for a right-handed person. Um, I can mouse with either hand because I've had to learn to do that. But I think it, it as a left-handed person, it presents you with small problems starting in infancy that you have to solve that other people don't. And I think solving problems at the end of the day is kind of part of what makes us human and unique. And so um, I'm proudly left-handed, but I also think it's an advantage and I'm happy. I was happy when I discovered that my my daughter's left-handed. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Right. It's also said that left-handed people are more creative, but I think maybe just being that ten percent 
could also be the reason that makes them more creative because they have to deal with a world maybe that is not designed for them. How does that relate to leadership? How does that relate to understanding different perspectives or showing empathy? <clears throat> do you think that plays a role? I do. I do. I think <clears throat> when you use the word empathy, which is exactly what I think is at the core of good leadership, is you have to see what's going on for other people. Great leaders um, are able to really observe and have empathy and understand what other people are going through, what motivates them, obviously. I mean, that's a motivation and getting people to do achieve things is, I think, seen as the bottom line of leadership. But I think at the end of the day, it's really, we all have struggles. We all get out of the morning and get out of bed in the morning and on a day when we don't feel like going to work or, you know, <laughs> have challenges in our personal lives. And great leaders can see what's going on for people and help them either overcome challenges or help them frame opportunity in ways that they couldn't otherwise. And um, and I think being able to see past differences in yourself relative to other people or across people is a big part of that because we are all unique in in many ways. And so it's whether it's somebody's left-handed and therefore they need a different setup in their keyboard mouse situation, or they have some issue of how they feel in social anxiety and how they deal in groups. I, I think another a piece of it I've learned a lot more about in recent years is kind of introversion and extroversion. And again, these are things that are not binary. They're not black or white. It's a spectrum. One of the things that, that I've realized about myself is that I'm more on the introverted side, but being introverted doesn't mean that I'm afraid to be around people or public speaking. I get up in front of very large audiences. I actually enjoy it. And I think I, I do a good job of public speaking, but it takes a lot out of me. Um, and going to like a large event, a cocktail party, something like that, I will tend to focus in and talk to a smaller group of people, potentially develop a deeper, longer term relationship versus jumping around. And at the end of it, I want to go off and be by myself for a little while and recharge. Extroverts, you know, that gives them energy. It gives, but it's seeing that in people and understanding that I, as a leader manager, can create scenarios where someone will be more comfortable and will be able to lean in and do the work that they need to do. And then also create opportunities for them to be stretched and maybe be a little bit uncomfortable and grow and find a balance between those two. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think like this is very relevant, what you shared about being an introvert and also being a left-handed and uh, pretty much the same for me as well, because that is what I have learned as being an introverted, but also being a left-handed person is that, like, I still write from the, from my right hand because as a child, I was forced to write or not use the left hand. Right. Yeah. So first of all, there is that creates a lot of like friction with why does the world look at me differently? Then the mm -hmm. same with introversion, right? I think we now have an understanding of that introversion is not equated to being a bad public speaker or being a bad leader. But if I go back a few decades and there was this very clear ideology or mindset that this is what a leader is and this is not what a leader is. So thank you for adding that. I think it adds to an extra dimension when it comes to leadership and actually dealing with different perspective, but also making those tough choices, as you said, right? Sometimes you have to make choices which make people comfortable, uncomfortable, but you can still communicate and can show empathy at the same time. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <clears throat> I very much agree. And I think it's really relevant, especially in technology development, because so many engineers 
are more introverted, are more comfortable with a computer than they are with people. Again, it's not a black and white thing and creating a space for them to be, maybe it's playing games. I, I know a lot of engineers who love to play uh, Dungeons and Dragons or card games or things like that. And so I remember at Payscale, we used to do an annual trip up to a ski area for everybody to go skiing or snowboarding or whatever, but we would also rent out a big chunk of the lodge and bring a bunch of board games. And there were some people who came up and all they did was sit in the lodge all day and play board games. And they had a fantastic time. And it was a social thing that they wouldn't necessarily have organized themselves. And they didn't physically feel comfortable getting out and sliding down the snow. But for them, it was still a very meaningful personal connection with coworkers. And so it's, um, it's not, it's, I guess it's being again, thoughtful and observing what is it that what is it that people gain energy from and benefit from and then trying to invest in that and creating those spaces? Yeah, yeah. And also now to begin to wrap it up, uh, what advice would you give to a leader who has grown up from being an introverted software engineer? Because what happens is many of these people who are good at engineering often end up becoming managers or leaders. And then they face a lot of challenges. As you said, right, if you're always with people, it takes a lot from you. What advice would you give them? Where would you like? Where would you set some boundaries? Where would you set that do not cross these lines, so that they can actually continue to grow, motivate their people, but also feel good, happily inside, right, from about themselves. Yeah, it's a it, you know that's a hard choice. It's a bit of a fork in the road that a lot of engineers find themselves at, where they continue to grow, they become the person who knows the most about a system or a technology or a product area. And if you're in growing companies, there's a sort of this natural opportunity that happens of like, well, you've been here for six months or a year or two years or whatever it is. And we just hired another hundred thousand people, whatever it is. Would you like to manage them? And a lot of engineers push back on that and say, no, like, I want to write code. I love being close to the technology. And for many of them, that really is the right answer. Um, and so I think one of one strong piece of advice that I would give is look for what we call two-way doors. So this notion, because a lot of times with promotions, especially into leadership management roles, um, it tends to be seen as a one-way door. You went from being an individual contributor to being a manager. And if you don't like it, if it doesn't work out, like it's hard to go backward. It's seen as a failure. And I don't think that's true. I think, again, back to experimentation mindset, what you want to do is you want to say, is there a way that I can experiment with being a leader? Can I basically be the scrum team leader for this two-week sprint while we try to accomplish this specific goal? Can I lean in and maybe define the architecture for that new product feature that we're thinking about? So being, leading and leading people doesn't necessarily mean being a manager. And so I encourage individuals from the individual to look for leadership opportunities themselves and to experiment and see, hey, do I like this? Is this good? Or does this keep me up at night and make me not feel good about myself? Um, and then if I'm already a manager and I'm thinking about going more senior, et cetera, is again, what are ways that I can try this out that are lower risk, that if it doesn't work out this time, I can try it again and it won't be, I haven't spent a huge amount of company's money or I haven't hired a bunch of people and then had to lay them off because the thing didn't work. And these are the kinds of things that create real scar tissue. Um, so again, it's embracing experimentation, trying things. And I'll say this, you know, some of the best manager leaders in tech that I've worked with started out saying, oh, I don't want, that's not for me. I don't want to be a leader. I want to, I'm going to write code for the rest of my life. 
Some of them have said and have maintained a quarter or a third or even half of their time for doing that. But they've actually turned out to be natural born leaders with a lot of that empathy and the ability to help people move forward. So experimentation, I guess, is again, my word, my keyword. Thank you. Thank you. I love that frame, right? That uh, it's not failure. It's not, it's just a different role with a different set of skill sets and it's okay to come back. And just like any skill, you can still learn and evolve. And as you said, right, if you're speaking at a big event, you can still create those moments of silence or safety to recover, to suit what works best for you. Thank you for adding that. Before we close this, if anybody who is listening wants to reach out or wants to like find out what are you up to, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, I'd say LinkedIn for sure. I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. Um, yeah, so just look me up on on LinkedIn. My profile is just slash Barnaby because I was an early adopter. Same with Twitter. I have slash Barnaby on Twitter, but uh, LinkedIn's probably the best. Yeah, reach out and uh, I have some free time that I'm dedicating to these kinds of explorations. So if somebody has a idea they want to explore or some advice that maybe they think I could help them with, I'd be more than happy to to engage. Thank you. Thank you, Barnaby, for everything that you shared. And I want to wish you best uh, for your sabbatical, for all the travels and all the exploration that lies ahead for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Wonderful. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.